This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome into another episode of the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm your host, Eric Scopel. No Matt Preem today, but once again, we've upgraded by bringing on uh, Sun Devil Source's Chris Cartman to discuss Saturday's game in Tempe, 1 p.m. Pacific time on Fox. Chris, how are we doing? Yeah, we'll keep that between us about uh, Matt, but I'm doing great. Um, things have been busy around here, but busy is good. Yeah, let's start with the busyness. Um, new leadership at Arizona State in the future, headed that direction with Ray Anderson. Thought we'd start there. Obviously, we're going to talk football in this week's game, but what kind of what kind of candidates are they looking for, and why did this make sense for Arizona State? Look, uh, I think Ray Anderson's tenure was uh, beyond its last legs. That thing had been ground down to the nubs, and the reality is that uh, he didn't connect with boosters. It was a massive problem to fundraise. The development part of it was just not nearly where it needed to be. And there were chants at the Rose Bowl after ASU beat UCLA, and it should have been an amazing moment of fans, dozens of fans, maybe a hundred. Ray, you suck. Ray, you suck. Ray, you suck. And he was there like a hundred feet away from this hearing it as he's congratulating people. I don't know if that was the straw that broke the camel's back, but the truth is that they needed an infusion of new energy. They needed money to start flowing in both directly and with their NIL. And Ray was the largest impediment that there was, which sounds crazy, to their ability to, to be successful moving forward. I think he came to understand that. It's kind of wild we were talking about this right before we jumped on. This is both the first podcast we've done with you on on a, on a, on a video, which is interesting because I know we've done a couple of these before, but that's because we didn't start doing video podcasts until 2021 or maybe it was 2020. Um, and the last time Oregon played Arizona State, it was 2019. And I know Duck fans who are listening probably don't want to think about that game. They don't want to think about the potential similarities between this upcoming weekend's game, but um, and then also the other part is that this is going to be the last time Oregon and Arizona State play potentially for a very, very long time. Just just general thoughts about kind of the uniqueness of this one where there's this big gap here and then there's one send off game. And who knows, maybe they'll meet in non-con, but uh, Pac-12 is, is, is coming to a close here. And this means the end of this kind of pseudo rivalry. It kind of feels like we're on the last legs of a, of a world tour. That's the last one. Um Went up to Seattle, went to Los Angeles, Pasadena, um, went to Utah, and uh, of course we'll be following or along with Utah in, in the in the Big Twelve, so that's different. But it's just the end of an era. I think there's a lot of sentimentality around that. A lot of fans had hoped that the Pac-12 would be able to stay together, 
and we'll have a lot of fun memories about the the rivalries and a lot of the historical stuff but at the same time there was that feeling that so many had that the leadership of the conference and the ability to keep pace uh, nationally had fallen so far behind that it, it wasn't really tenable and um Hey, we're just going to do what we do, right? We just <laughs> we just move forward. I think that's kind of everybody's thing is we still love ASU covering college football, reporting on the team, whatever it is, depending on which category you're in. And then um, you just see what's next. But uh, there's a lot of melancholy for sure about this whole thing. It's kind of getting real for me here as we come to a close of this regular season about how good this league is and how good I think it would hypothetically be for future seasons just looking around the conference like there's not outside of you could probably argue maybe Cal or Stanford there's not like a program that seems like it's really on a negative trajectory and we'll talk about Arizona State and its future in a moment here but I it there is a you said sentimentality and I totally can feel that and I think Oregon fans are are feeling kind of conflicted, you know, excited, Big Ten, new opportunities, exciting stuff, but also like, man, this league could have been, especially heading into the 12-team playoff, this could have been pretty fun. Um, but let's focus on the here and now, this weekend's game. We don't have to get too far into that. That There's the offseason for, for those discussions. Um, we got to know Kenny Dillingham a little bit during his one year in Eugene. What a great guy. I had a lot of fun covering him and interacting with him on a, on a weekly basis. Um, what's the Kenny Dillingham experience been like for you? And I guess I'm just curious because you've been around that program for a long time. Did you know him at all or have any past relationship from, from when he was there previously? Yeah, um, I've known him for probably nine years now. He was a GA up and coming. You could tell that he was very um, passionate, enthusiastic, engaged, ambitious. He was with the right staff at the right time. Dan Lanning, of course, was at ASU then. Mike Norvell, Chip Long, Chris Ball went on to be a head coach at uh, Northern Arizona um, and others on the staff who have, have really kind of flown up through the ranks. Uh, Memphis's head coach. Um, so it, it worked out just very perfectly for Dillingham. He attached himself coming out of coaching at Chaparral High School, he's 22, 23 years old, whatever, attaches himself to Mike Norvell. That's a pretty good person to happen to get in good with really early on. Worked hard. I remember he was a grunt. He he, he doesn't mind me saying this. He was a guy that went and got coffee and dry cleaning and did whatever it took in addition to helping out as an offensive GA. And I, I'm covering the team and he's trying to get to know the people covering the team and that I think he realizes that has a chance to reflect positively on him and stories and things of that nature. Um, and he is funny because we stayed in touch, uh, not all the time, but we would, you know, every once in a while hit each other up seasons get busy, but he messaged me maybe five years, almost exactly before he became the coach at ASU and said, uh, via DM, he was like, I, I want to be the coach that replaces Herm Edwards someday. And I said to myself, yeah, sure, buddy. That's going to, yeah, you're, you're, you're like 28 right now. Like that's not going to happen. And, um, and then 
you know, I knew that when the Herm Edwards thing kind of went down, there was a chance that Michael Crow, ASU's president, and Ray Anderson might look for a different type of a candidate and somebody who had better connections to the Valley and was a graduate at ASU and uh, booster relationships and somebody who was young and had the ability to uh, connect with players at, at a better level and understand the rapidly changing landscape, NIL, all these things, right? And I was like, maybe he does have a chance. Mm -hmm. And then it became pretty clear that he was a very strong candidate. And um, I've been fortunate because we did have this good relationship that continues. And that's also carried over to his staff. And so covering this team, especially because they've been, it's very different than at Oregon or most places. Uh, the access is, is incredible in terms of we get to watch in the entirety of practice during the season, which what the you know, that, that's not common anywhere. Right. No. And the thing is, is that there are certain things that we're not allowed to report whatsoever, but then the, one of the positives about this, Eric, is that a lot, the, it, it eliminates the conspiracy theory stuff where people, fans and people, they start getting these impressions about, Oh, you know, so and so would be way better if he was if he were the starting quarterback or whatever. But and then you're sitting there and you're like, actually, you're watching every day, and that's not the case. And so you knock down a lot of things. Um, you know, sometimes it's it's hard. There's a lot of things that you wish you could report that you can't report uh, based upon the rules. But the policy has been so good because it allows for us to have a better understanding about ASU football and what's really actually going on than we otherwise would. And this, again, all schools are different. I'm not knocking Dan Lanning, who I like a lot, and his approach. I think that ASU is at a certain place right now where it needs as much as it can engagement with fans. That requires a conduit via the media to the audience in order to make them feel inspired or passionate by what's kind of happening that doesn't need to happen really as much at when you're a blue blood quote unquote or you're competing for championships every year so this is something that very specifically i think benefited uh kane dillingham asu and then us covering the team right now but it's it's a pretty sweet situation to be in envious Certainly envious. Also understanding of the dynamics that are different, as you pointed out. That, that's not lost on me either. But uh, watching a full football practice, watching 11-on-11 in practice, don't get me started, Chris. The, guy, the, the listeners know our, uh, our feelings on it. We haven't been too quiet about it, but we know it's not changing. Um, this is, I mean, just, just kind of talking about this this season for Kenny, dealt sort of a tough hand with a self-imposed postseason ban right as the season was about to get underway. Um We'll get through some of the injuries, which have been kind of continuous and never ending, it seems like. But how has he made this season meaningful? How has he continued to kind of push the buttons? Because you look up and you go, they've won three games and two of them are the last couple of times out here, um, again, with a sort of depleted roster. The Pac-12 is a gauntlet. You, you know this. Um, every week you're getting a really good opponent just about outside of maybe – two or three teams. And, and the reality is that ASU had fallen so far behind due to the NCAA investigation 
crushing recruiting and swallowing up the prior staff and even the administration now like a black hole that when when Dillingham was hired, he had to go out and build a mostly new roster and do it in a matter of weeks or months or whatever. They added 50 new scholarship players, 30 Division I transfers. The prior record was 14 at ASU. Then you have to install all new schemes. It, it, this, it, they have... Uh, they weren't going to have a returning anchor quarterback that they could be sure that they'd be able to rely upon. And that's really difficult. And so the reality of this season through that, through that lens is they weren't going to be a nine win, 10 win team. I, I, I think everything would have had to have gone perfectly for them to have been like a seven win team. And the truth is, as you said, we'll talk about the injuries and whatnot, but not, it didn't go close to, to what, yeah. uh, what what even would have been good, much less perfectly. And they've been they've been very competitive, though. This is a thing that I don't I don't know that people really understand out, outside of of Tempe because you know you're not really studying it that well or whatever. But they were very competitive at on the road at Washington. Maybe even should have won that game. They battled against good teams and have been within one score, like three of their losses or something like that. And the, the thing though, that he's tried to impress upon them that I think is starting to take hold is there needs to be a greater sense of urgency about everything that you're doing, not just when you're playing a football game on Saturdays. And then also part of that is to be a lot more willingly physical in everything that you're doing. They use Utah as the example, sort of like the gold standard of the conference from a physicality and attention to detail standpoint. And that's been developed for so many years with Kyle Winningham and his staff. Um, and that was missing at ASU in the first half of the season, especially on offense. They were kind of soft, really. And they've started to capture this understanding of how hard that it actually is to be good and what are the key ingredients in that. And they've been better, not progress, not being a straight line, but they've been better on that over the last four games, I would say, than they were in the first six games of the season. So if they're, if they're able to continue that, um, they'll still have losses that were maybe they're not super competitive. This week could be one of them, but they have a chance to continue to make progress and be better. And that's ultimately what it's all about is continuously getting better. Let's focus on that quarterback position and, and news kind of breaking today. It sounded like Jaden Rashada back at practice. He hasn't played in eight games, I think two months. Um, what's the latest there? And then broadly walk us through the quarterback situation. Cause as I kind of alluded to earlier, it, it hasn't been e easy. There's been several different guys starting. We watched. I was watching the highlights from last week and noticed you were seeing. I think there's 22 total snaps for non-quarterbacks and kind of wildcat situations. And we saw a running back throw a touchdown pass. I mean, it's just it's kind of getting wild there. But start with Rashad, and then you can work through kind of what else has been the dynamic there. Sure. So um, he, he's a super talented freshman arrival, the signature guy in a signing class. It wasn't expected that he was going to start at all this season, but then in camp, Drew Pine, who's a Notre Dame transfer, uh, hurt his hamstring 
uh, grade two strain of his hamstring and he was going to be out for at least a month expected. And then Trenton Bourget, who started a bunch of games last season returning, but limited in some ways physically. He doesn't have great size, doesn't have great athleticism, doesn't have a big arm. Um, very accurate, gets the ball out. But from an operational standpoint, he went through a period, a week or so, after Pine got hurt where he didn't practice well. And Rashada is so tantalizing with his talent that the coaches pretty clearly were like, okay, don't know if he's like consistently going to be better right now, but we think that for this team and who we are, he gives us a better chance. And also, of course, you're thinking about the future. Sure. And uh, although, you know, they're not saying that exactly, but that's, I'm sure it has to be at least somewhat of the calculus. And um, he goes out and, um, you know, like, like you kind of would expect, he connects on some big plays and also makes some mistakes and he's a freshman and all this. But then he aggravated an old high school injury um, against uh, Oklahoma State that eventually required uh, a surgical procedure um, and he didn't practice for about seven or eight weeks maybe six, six weeks, maybe before he started to do some things. And I'm, I'm factoring in the bye week there. And then this week for the first time, he's in 11 ons and he's starting to ramp up and look better. Don't, don't, he's not going to start pretty confident that he won't start against Oregon. Okay. I'm not going to rule out the possibility that he might play. I think that's possible at this point. Don't know for sure, but the um, Bourget and Pine they each have started. Uh, they each have been hurt. Pine, re, Pine got hurt again. They had a terrible game against Fresno State where they got shut out 29 nothing or something. ASU had eight turnovers. It was, I was, it just went completely off the rails to an insane degree that I've never seen with their four string quarterback out there, Jacob Conover, who had to also play again at Utah because Bourget has been hurt off and on with an ankle that's kind of been getting re-aggravated um, since that game, the Fresno state game. And so um, that's part of what's been a major factor with their quarterback position is they haven't really had stability there from somebody who's been healthy throughout. And what they've done offensively is because of this and their offensive line injuries, which have been really crippling, they've had, they've missed 40 something games um, for, uh, with scholarship linemen and almost all of those games that have been missed with the scholarship linemen have been their best four or five linemen like and then a few games like they're six seven eight guys and so how are you going to be successful when you need to rebuild your roster and then you're you don't have nearly as much talent and or depth in your o-line as you would after a few years probably right and then you're playing you don't have some of these games they haven't had three or four of their top five or six guys and then they haven't had backups some some of these games so they what they did was you guys are obviously very versed in, in Dillingham's offense they changed what they were doing quite drastically uh starting with like mm, Washington for sure Washington State is kind of when they started to have some success with it. They got into these cut splits, exit motions. They ran a lot of speed sweep, toss opposite the speed sweep, Borgay under center, play action, 
try to get something down the seam um, where you could get some slips, um, you know, run, run Jalen Connors or another tight end on a block release or a exit motion where he looks like he's going to be blocking for a screen. No, he's not. Now he's running down the field. These are things that I think the, the NFL is, is really in love with right now. The Miami dolphins, the 49ers, the Rams, the chiefs, um, you know, football goes through different phases and cycles and, and these things. Uh, Rashad Samples, who's ASU's wide receivers coach, he was with the Rams last season. He's very versed in, in Sean McVay and what they do. And I think that they were able to, you know, jury rig some things together that tried to give them a chance to run the ball better because they were running the ball really poorly without this O-line. And by bringing bodies, more receiver and tight end bodies into the box, you then had the ability to capture the edge a little bit better, get some numbers ahead of some of these speed sweeps and things of that nature, and then try to run some play actions off of that in RPOs. And and they it looked decent against Washington, but they 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 did really poorly once they got in the, in, in the verge of scoring territory. They they sort of just flamed out. But then Washington State they had a good game. UCLA, even though they didn't really move the football well they made an additional evolution because Chip Kelly and their staff is so good and their D line is so great that they're like, okay, we don't, we can't have this D line lining up again opposite us and just play normal football. We're going to get killed. The rest of our linemen are going to be out. Our quarterback is probably going to get hurt. So they did the swinging gate thing where they put these four linemen all the way on the far side with one receiver. So they had the threat of the, the bubble screens over there, but then they got two on twos generated, uh, on either side of the center and then also on the other side of the field. And it, it so frustrated UCLA because they didn't have any time to, to pass rush and they weren't aligned where they normally would be that they were starting to commit dumb penalties. Like they had a personal foul on a fourth down that they, that was crucial in the game and they had pass interference penalties and things of that nature. And that coupled with a really great defensive performance where ASU stopped UCLA twice inside the short red area um, on fourth downs, turn the ball over and another time. So three fourth down stops, no fourth down conversions, no ability to pass the ball with UCLA's third string quarterback and a very limited run game. Uh, UCLA had 300 yards of total offense in the game and, and uh, only seven points. And one of the more remarkable wins that I've seen in terms of what coaching directly produced from a team that is not as good as the opponent on the road. I, I was really impressed. I didn't get to watch it live because there was some overlap with Oregon's game, but just kind of looking up going, oh, they're, they're keeping UCLA in check. And I watched that sequence again, or the back-to-back sequences actually with those fourth down stops in the red area like you referenced. And, you know, I, again, from afar, haven't watched a ton of, of how they performed in that area, but that defensive front, that feels like a strength of the Arizona State defense. What I'm familiar with BJ Green. Is Prince Dorba? Is he is he available? I know he's been dealing with a couple of things. Like, what's made them so good? Yeah, um, Brian Ward's done a really great job. Um, they play fast and loose, and they're aggressive. He talks about wanting to stop the run on the way to the quarterback. They've done that for the most part. Um, Deshaun Mallory has been a star player, transfer from Michigan State, D tackle. I think he's like maybe their MVP overall. Uh, Trey Brown is a linebacker who arrived with Ward and linebackers coach AJ Cooper from Washington State. He's done a very good job. BJ Green, you can move him inside, outside. He's improved as a, as a run-stopping player, always been a good pass rusher. They have 
Prince Dorba um, from Texas, who's was among the, the Pac-12 leaders in sacks, and Clayton Smith from Oklahoma, who's done a very good job. Uh, Dorba had an elbow injury. Uh, I think he's questionable at best for this game. Okay. Uh, good, ch- good chance he might not play. Um, really, Clayton Smith, though, was starting ahead of him at the outset of the season before he got hurt, and he's starting to look better now. So I think he has a he, he might have been the, the best sort of quick twitch pass rusher like that they had as far as the speed guy. Dorba maybe a little bit more dynamic in terms of the, the variety of his pass rush moves. But um, I really feel like whoever's out there, they, ha- they have a very good approach and they play uh, with their hair on fire and it, it, it translates. When they get opportunities, they tend to uh, get pressures and even sacks. They, it hasn't really um, led to a lot of turnovers. That's sort of the weirdest thing about this team is ASU was last nationally in turnover margin and turnovers generated at the midpoint of the season. And it was so uncharacteristic because they had one turnover generated in six games, but in Brian Ward's previous eight seasons as a coordinator, they had averaged 1.7 per game. <laughs> so they were it, they were so far outside of the expectation. It, 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 so it was crazy. And they've started to progress to the mean in, in recent weeks um, to where at least it's not some absurdity of, of, a, of a thing. But I, you almost kind of feel like ASU still do in some respects to win turnover margin games because of kind of the weirdness that was part of that earlier on in the season. But you're right, Eric, 100%. That is the strength of ASU's defense and probably even its entire team. Got a couple more for you, and then we'll, we'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your afternoon here. Um, I've watched Kenny's press conference from Monday. I think some of our listeners have too, but I'm, I'm curious on what kind of can you summarize what he said about this game? There's so much familiarity here, obviously, from his time at Oregon and even preceding his time in Oregon, his time with Dan at several stops, his time with Bo Nix at Auburn. I mean, they this is probably there certainly isn't a team in the country that he probably has more familiarity with or more overlap with what, what has he said about that? And, and kind of, you know, you hear coaches talk about kind of blocking out some of that stuff. Is he somebody who's embracing it? Is what, what's kind of been his message on, on that front? Yeah. So I mentioned the sentimentality part earlier. He's not like that at all. He's like, everybody asks him, are you going to stop and look around and, and, and take in the air a little bit more in their last possible trip to the Rose bowl for a long time, or maybe ever. And he's like, no. And then, you know, people ask him about, Oh, the, your last time that you're going to be going up to this trip. Or Does that matter? No, he didn't even know that it was homecoming on homecoming week at ASU. He found out in a Monday press conference and he was like, Oh, it's homecoming. I probably should know that I'm the head coach <laughs> here. And it was kind of funny. Sounds right. Uh, yeah. But the thing is that, so he's, you're not going to get a lot of that stuff from him about playing Oregon, but, and this is, I think really what I would underline, he has a very good relationship with Dan Lanning and with Bo Nix. Like he, they, they are very close in their, in their relationships. And so that part of it, I'm sure he's looking forward to seeing them. He's looking forward to being able to play and try to be successful as much as you can. I know that they still text and stuff, uh, Dan. And and so, you know, this has to be the thing, the game on his schedule that he probably was most looking forward to just from that 
sort of standpoint. But uh, also uh, when ASU is in the situation that it's currently in and you're playing up against an absolute juggernaut of an opponent that you probably should not be that close to in a final score, that probably takes away some of that juice uh, that you that you otherwise um, would be maybe maxing out on at this point. Yeah, and the feelings are certainly mutual. We had Dan speak on Monday night, and Bo just spoke a couple hours ago. We're recording this Tuesday. This podcast goes up Wednesday, but there's so much mutual respect and admiration and glowing remarks about each other, and you can just sense there's a little bit more smiling and kind of laughing and kind of chuckling to yourself when you're talking about the opposition than you get most weeks, which we're, we've both been in this business for a long time. A lot of this is deadpan. We take the opponent seriously. There's a little bit more lightheartedness almost in, in the in the responses. This yeah, week. absolutely. And um, and look, we, we have been in this business a long time and maybe we're on the wrong side of it because Dan Lanning and Kenny Dillingham were making like goose egg, bupkis, nothing uh literally 10 years ago okay and now they are like they're the most uh well-paid employees in the states that they currently reside in oregon and arizona i would imagine i don't don't know for sure about oregon but kenny dillingham for sure the highest paid employee in uh in in well actually maybe along with arizona's basketball coach i think that could be a very very i have to look at that it's very close but this is this is just the reality of of college athletics and it's been a really it's been a joyful thing for me to kind of see these people kind of go through the ranks because they're really good salt of the earth people like they just they just want to do a good job in, in their careers the thing that they're passionate about helping young men like oh, there's a lot of coaches as you know who you who you we're not going to name names but you don't really like them you don't think that they are you know transparent they're not serious in a lot of the things that they say they're they're uh you know just a lot of things about them that you don't really respect all that much or admire um and not saying that's like pervasively what it is across college football but you just when you do this long time you 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 experience those those people and these are like Dan Lanning, he was he was awesome. Like, there's no way that he's not still an absolute great, genuine guy. And Kenny is as well. And um, so it's really cool to kind of see them have the the type of success or the rise in, in their careers that they've had. You're right on that financial trajectory because I ten years ago I was making butt kiss and now I'm making butt kiss plus a couple of bucks. Right? Yeah, it hasn't changed a whole lot. Exactly. <laughs> uh, last one here. Um, you kind of mentioned it earlier that the goal obviously for Arizona state is to win this football game. Oregon has had a much more successful season has a little bit more to play for. Perhaps obviously there's, there's a lot there in terms of rights and, and, and all of that, but what are some kind of things that you think need to happen for this to be a game in the fourth quarter where it's close and it's competitive and maybe your, your message board feels really good about the day. It's going to take one of the best maybe the best game of the year overall for ASU to accomplish that. Um, I think two keys, number one, to the best degree that you possibly can, limiting Oregon's explosives, especially in the passing game. They ASU did that so well against Washington. Washington uh, entered that game with something like 4.3, 30-plus yard plays per game and had zero against ASU. Um the difference, though, is 
Michael Penix is a very uh, pocket-oriented quarterback. And so ASU threw a lot of A-gap pressures at him that were overloading the A-gap, totally designed not to sack him necessarily because you knew that he'd see that coming, but ball's got to come out, ball's got to come out, ball's got to come out. And the thing about it is that he didn't have the play extension ability with his feet to um, keep things alive long enough to be able to still hit big shots. And they did throw the ball long in ASU's secondary in a lot of man coverage or cover four looks was able to hold up and do, do a very good job. So Bo Nix, he's, he's got more play extension ability. You can't, you can't, you're not going to be able to use the same recipe, but the, the, the final dish has to look very similar uh, to what ASU did against Washington in order to have any chance. And then I would say that ASU has to win the turnover margin and not just narrowly. Like it can't be like a one zero turnover margin or something like that. Like ASU needs to generate multiple turnovers, not turn the football over. And ASU has to turn red area uh, into touchdowns and Oregon's red area has to be field goals or no points. And if you put all of that together, then you have a small chance of uh, being within a touchdown late in the game and having a chance to win. I'm sort of foreshadowing that I'm not going to be predicting a particularly close uh, outcome on Saturday. But then again, I did not predict ASU to be close against UCLA in a game that it won. So who knows? That's why they play the games. That's what makes it fun. He's Chris Cartman from Sun Devil Source, our 24-7 sports Arizona State affiliate. Appreciate the time, Chris. I unfortunately not heading down. I'm bummed out that I won't be seeing you up in the press box there again. But uh, enjoy the uh, end of this conference and, and the end of this rivalry, at least for maybe, I don't know, several years. Who knows what happens in the future? Yeah, right when we get a, a nice afternoon game in November with great weather, Eric, they, you don't get to come down here. I'm, I'm going to have to talk to the powers that be about this. Yeah, please, please do. Let them know. Let them know. Let them hear it. All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Have a good night. Thank you. It was a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.